state-of-the-art patents update. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. I'm your host, Daniel Wise, and in today's discussion, I'll be joined by David Thompson and Sam Greyer, two associates in our chemistry team. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. In this episode, David will be talking to me about recent EPO case law on claim interpretation and explaining a different approach that has been taken by the UPC, particularly the Munich Local Division. Then Sam will be reviewing so-called bonus effects and one-way streets at the EPO, which is one of the niche areas of our law on obviousness, but an interesting one. Okay, so let's kick off with you, David. Why is claim interpretation such a hot topic at the moment? Sure, Dan. So as you may have seen, the topic of claim interpretation has been cropping up a fair bit on the patent blogs. And this is because there have been a few Board of Appeal decisions which have looked at this area in different ways. But the recent headline news on claim interpretation was from the appeal case T439 of 22. This case is pending with oral proceedings due to take place in April this year. However, a couple of months ago, in early December 2023, the board had actually issued a communication to the parties announcing their intention to refer a question on claim interpretation to the Enlarged Board of Appeal. And the board wanted to refer a question here because they thought that there was diverging case law on whether the description should be taken into account when interpreting a claim that contains allegedly clear wording. So what's the background of this case then? T439 of 22, you said? Yeah, that's it, exactly. So yeah, the patent in this case covers a cartridge for a smoking device, and Claim 1 covers a heated aerosol-generating device which comprises a gathered sheet of aerosol-forming material. And the key issue for the appeal is whether or not the claims are novel over a prior art document which discloses a heated aerosol-generating device comprising a spirally-wound aerosol-forming substrate. So on the issue in claim interpretation, this comes into play to determine whether the spirally wound material in the prior art destroys the novelty of the gathered sheet material in the claim. The description of the patent in this case actually gives a definition for the term gathered, but during the opposition proceedings, the division had not taken this definition in the description into account when they were interpreting the term gathered sheet So this then led to a finding that the patent was novel because the spirally wound material of the prior art was not considered equivalent to the gathered material of the claim when they hadn't taken that definition in the description into account. And the opponent is now seeking to overturn the decision of the opposition division and basically wants the Board of Appeal to take the definition of gathered from the description into account when interpreting the claims. Okay, so the Board thinks we need a referral on this. I mean, haven't we been interpreting claims for years? You're exactly right. I mean, we have, but it's something that I think I mentioned earlier. The board in this case thinks there is diverging case law on whether or not the description should be taken into account when interpreting a claim that contains allegedly clear wording. So in their communication regarding the referral, the board mentioned two cases that they thought demonstrated the two lines of diverging case law. And these two cases that they mentioned are T169 of 20 and T1473 of 19. And also in their communication, the board had set out the question that they intend to refer to the large board. And this question asks whether the wording of the claim should be interpreted under Article 69 EPC and the protocol and its interpretation or under Article 84 EPC. So those diverging cases sound like they were quite recent. What were they all about? 
the first of these cases was T169 of 20, which the board referred to as an example of the so-called classical approach to claim interpretation. And this is where the description should not be taken into account when the wording of a claim is clear. So in this case, the board had looked at the provisions of the EPC and decided that only Article 84 EPC was relevant when interpreting the claims for the purpose of evaluating patentability. And the board had held that Article 69.1 EPC should not apply for evaluating patentability as it only relates to the determination of the extent of the protection of the patent, which is relevant more for infringement rather than evaluating patentability. The board then found that Article 84 EPC did not provide legal basis for consulting the description if the claims are already clear. So the board decided that the interpretation of the claim, which did not take the description into account, was the correct interpretation here. And then this led to a finding that the claim lacked an inventive step. Hmm, that's putting a lot of emphasis on whether a word is clear or not. That feels like it's always going to be subjective. Well, what happened in the second case? The second case mentioned by the board was T1473 of 19. And this one says that the description should be considered even when the wording of a claim is clear. And in contrast to the first case, the board here found that Article 69 EPC and the protocol and its interpretation can and should be relied on for the purpose of assessing patentability. And based on this, they found that the description should be considered during claim interpretation. However, even though the board held that the description should be taken into account when interpreting the claims, in this instance, the description wasn't enough actually to outweigh the wording of the claims, which then resulted in the patent being revoked for added matter. So you might be able to see that these two cases quite clearly differ on the point as to whether or not Article 69 EPC should be used to interpret the claims for assessing patentability. And I suppose the board thinks that this then leads on to a question of whether or not the description should be taken into account when you're interpreting the claims. Interesting. And you were going to tell us a bit about the UPC as well. How are they approaching claim interpretation? There's been a recent decision from the Munich Local Division of the UPC, which we think might give some indication of how the UPC are going to interpret claims. The case in question is called SES versus Hanshoe, and it relates to the alleged infringement of SES's patent by Hanshoe. So SES had applied for a preliminary injunction to stop Hanshoe from selling their electronic shelf labeling system. Are those those little like stickers with prices that you see on the shelves in the supermarket? Yeah, exactly. So it's instead of, I suppose, a traditional sticky label on a, on a supermarket shelf, you've now got an electronic screen showing the pricing information. But yeah, in this case, claim one of SES's patent covered one of these electronic labels and the wording of the granted claim specified where the printed circuit board and the antenna should be located in the housing of that electronic label. So during the proceedings, SES and Hanshu each had presented arguments on claim interpretation with SES saying that the position of the circuit board and the antenna as specified in the claims should be interpreted in a way that covered Hanshu's product. Whereas Hanshu obviously preferred a different claim interpretation, which would have meant that their product wasn't covered by the claims. And both parties were able to point to various parts of the description of the patent, which would support their arguments. So then looking at the decision, the local division actually took quite an unexpected approach to claim interpretation because they decided they would use the original version of the claims as well as the prosecution history to help interpret where the circuit board and the antenna should be located in the granted claims. 
And based on this construction, the local division then refused the application for a preliminary injunction because they held that Hanshu's products did not fall within the scope of the claims in view of the location of the antenna. And I guess if they made that amendment, they intended it to change the meaning of the claims. Is that the same way things work at the EPO and in national courts? What we think is interesting about this is it's quite a different approach to what we're used to seeing at the EPO, certainly, as well as some of the national courts in Europe. So because the local division decided to use the original claims of the application as filed and the prosecution history to aid their interpretation, that's quite a different approach. For instance, the boards of appeal at the EPO generally would rely only on the patent as granted when they're interpreting the claims. But one point that's important to remember here is that the UPC division have to consider infringement, of course, and therefore the opponent would be arguing for a narrower interpretation of the claim than the patentee would like. So that's different than the EPO, which tend not to hear arguments from opponents arguing for narrower claim interpretations in the patentee. So there's probably much less of a need for the EPO to have a look at what the patentee has said in their file history. But then if we think about the national courts, they tend to use different approaches to claim interpretation. So for example, the German national courts wouldn't look at the prosecution history when they're interpreting the claims whereas this would be um, more established practice in France, Belgium and the Netherlands, and it's also allowed in limited cases in the UK. But yeah, in the SES versus Hanshu case that I've been chatting about, the legally qualified judge on the board was Dutch, so the fact that they're more familiar with the law in the Netherlands might explain why the court felt it was appropriate to consider the original claims as well as the prosecution history here. It's amazing that something as fundamental as claim interpretation can be approached so differently in different jurisdictions around Europe and at the EPO and even between boards at the EPO. You mentioned there might be a referral at the EPO. Is that actually going ahead then? Do we know if we're going to have to wait and see how patents should be interpreted at the EPO? Well, yeah. So in the communication that the board issued, they said that the referral could go ahead if the parties would withdraw their request for oral proceedings. But I think the patentee in that case once to have their chance to argue during the oral proceedings, so they decide not to withdraw their request. So we're probably going to have to wait until the oral proceedings in April before there's any more news about when the referral would be. So watch this space. Exactly, yeah. Thank you. That was a good summary there, David. Let's move on to Sam, who's talking to us about bonus effects and one-way street. So let's go right back to basics. What actually is a bonus effect, Sam? The concept of a bonus effect is relevant to the assessment of inventive step. And as you know, the EPO uses the problem and solution approach to assess inventive step. And part of this involves assessing the differences between the close prior art and the claimed invention and determining the effects of those differences. It's well established that if a difference has an unexpected effect, then this can lead to a finding of inventive step. But it's not always the case that an unexpected effect is found to be inventive. For example, if a differentiating feature has two separate technical effects and it would be obvious to achieve one of these effects, then the additional effect, however surprising, is merely a bonus effect and cannot be taken into account for inventive step. So it's sort of if you've already made a change for an obvious reason, you can't rely on a surprising effect for inventive step. And, and where does that concept come from? Well, it all started with T21 of 81, which is quite an old case. And in this case, the claims related to an electromagnetic device with a tungsten carbide coating. So the closest prior was a device with a plastic coating and the first effect achieved by replacing the plastic coating with a tungsten carbide coating was increased durability. The second effect was an audible chatter when the device was at the end of its useful life. 
It was known that tungsten carbide provided increased durability, but the effect of audible chatter was new and unexpected. So while there were other materials that were known to provide improved durability, tungsten carbide had several advantages over these materials, such as being easier to apply. The board therefore found that it was obvious for the skilled person to select tungsten carbide and arrive at something falling within the scope of the claims because the advantageous effect of increased durability could be expected. This meant that the additional effect of audible chatter was ruled out as a bonus effect, despite it being unexpected. So how do you actually know, though, if your additional unexpected effect is a bonus effect? That's an interesting question and perhaps a good time to introduce the concept of a one-way street situation, as this can be used to determine whether an additional unexpected effect is a bonus effect. So T69 of 83 provides an early example of when a one-way street situation arises. So here it was held that when the skilled person is obliged or inevitably guided to adopt a certain solution, that solution is not automatically rendered inventive by the fact that it also unexpectedly solves another problem. So in other words, if a skilled person has a number of options for solving the technical problem, but there's some teaching in the prior art which inevitably leads the skilled person to a particular solution, then any unexpected effect is a bonus effect. As with all case law, the definition of a one-way street situation has evolved over time. In T192 of 82, a one-way street situation is defined as a situation where the skilled person lacks alternatives when attempting to solve the technical problem. So a bonus effect would arise if the skilled person had no option but to follow a particular path. The flip side of this definition is that if the skilled person has a number of options to choose from, then an additional unexpected effect might not be ruled out as a bonus effect. Okay, I get that. So if I'm a patentee and someone is saying you're invention's just a bonus effect. You know, you made a change for an obvious reason and it happens to have this other magical property. And I would defend it then by saying, no, hang on, there were lots of different ways of achieving that obvious effect. You could have done one of a number of things. And that's why the particular one I chose was inventive because it gives this other magical property. That sounds like quite a nice get out. How come that doesn't work all the time? So the reason is that sometimes boards decide to take a different position, as was the case in a recent decision, T13, 17 of 13. So in this case, the board found that an additional effect that was new and unexpected to be a bonus effect. And the applicant took, as you said, the usual approach of arguing that the skilled person wasn't in a one-way street situation, but the board disagreed that this one-way street situation is a mandatory prerequisite for the principles that we just discussed earlier in T21 of 81. So as you recall, in T21 of 81, tungsten carbide was one of a number of options, so the skilled person was not faced with a lack of alternatives or a one-way street, as situation as defined in T192 of 82. So the board said, well, hang on, there were a number of options there, and in that situation there was found to be a bonus effect, so we'll take the same approach here. And this case really did kind of throw a spanner in the works because it appeared to suggest that one-way streets really are one way in favour of an opponent. So, in other words, as an opponent, if you're arguing there's a one-way street, this will give weight towards a finding that there's an additional effect as a bonus effect. But as a patentee, if you're arguing there's other obvious options that you could have taken and therefore no one-way street, this might not be enough to avoid the finding of a bonus effect. So there seems, after this case, there seemed to be no limit to when the concept of a bonus effect could be applied. Okay, so it feels like the case law is sort of swinging like a pendulum and that's a hard decision for patentees. Has there been softer things happening since then? Yes, there's actually been a very recent decision, T1356 of 21, where they discussed the limits to the application of the concept of a bonus effect. 
So in this case, the claims related to insulin glargine with a concentration of 270 to 330 units per mil and the medical use of treating type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And the closest prior was 100 unit per mil insulin glargine composition. So increasing the concentration of insulin glargine had two effects. The first is that it reduced discomfort or pain because many diabetic patients use large doses of insulin which require large volumes that can cause discomfort. Increasing the concentration from 100 units to 300 units therefore means that the same number of units of insulin glargine could be ejected at one third the injection volume, which obviously reduces discomfort or pain. The second effect is flatter pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profile and longer duration of action. And so the patent showed that insulin glargine at 300 units is not equivalent to 100 units. 300 units exhibit flatter PKMPD profiles and had longer duration of action than 100 units. Okay, so I get it. So the invention was increasing the concentration. Precisely. And the obvious effect, the bonus effect, was the fact that that let you reduce the volume and therefore it was less painful to inject. But the clever effect was to do with PD and PK, which might not have been predictable. So how did the sides argue those facts? So the appellant actually argued that they tried to change the first tank effect to increase reducing the volume of injection rather than reducing discomfort or pain. And the reason, as you probably worked out, they did this is because it's then easier to argue that it's obvious to increase the concentration to reduce injection volume. And then this set them up nicely to dismiss, as you said, the clever effect of flatter PK and PD profiles as a bonus effect. And they said that this would have never to be achieved by increasing the concentration. The respondent argued that the first effect is actually reduced discomfort or pain and that there's not a one-way street situation because this could be addressed by the means, for example, you could divide the injection to several smaller volumes. And the respondent also argued that the second effect of improved PK and PD properties has a greater practical importance for basal insulin formulations than the first effect of reducing injection volume. Okay, so the clever effect was much more important, basically, is what they're saying. And what did the board say about that? Did they agree? Yes, the board leaned towards the patentee and they said that the case law and bonus effects shouldn't be applied to all situations where a differentiating feature with two separate technical effects, where one of those effects is to be expected and the other is ultimately a bonus effect. They said that shouldn't really happen. And they went on to summarise some limitations as to how the bonus effect concept should be applied. So the first is that there's a lack of alternative means for achieving the first expected improvement. So in other words, the one-way street situation, which we discussed earlier. And the second is that the relative technical and practical importance of the effects need to be considered in the circumstance of the case to determine whether that additional unexpected effect is barely accidental. And the board concluded that when there's not a one-way street situation, a crucial and unexpected technical advantage should not be disregarded as soon as any additional obvious effect is mentioned in the pattern. Yeah, I mean, that seems fair enough. If the magnitude of that second effect is really important, then that does sound like an invention to me. How does that line up with the earlier case, though, the stricter case, T13, 17 of 13? So the board actually acknowledged this decision in its case, and it said that it didn't provide... A basis for an unqualified application of the bonus effect case law to any situation where a given feature has multiple effects without taking into account the technical and practical importance of those effects. And it also mentioned that other case T192 of 82 and said that its decision was in line with that where use of means to leading to some expected improvements might well be patentable if relying on additional effect provided this involves a choice from a multiplicity of possibilities. So they seem to say that what they're saying lines up with the earlier cases and 
the T13, 17, 13 doesn't exclude what they're saying either. So the pendulum is swinging the other way. Exactly. Okay, so wrap that up for us then. You know, there's a long thread of case law there going in one direction, then the next. Where does it leave us? What can patentees do to help defend themselves against an allegation that their invention is just a bonus effect? Well, the first thing they can do is argue that the first effect is not obvious, so the second effect doesn't automatically get disregarded as a bonus effect. Something else they can do is consider changing their closest prior art because bonus effects are only an issue if your difference leads to an obvious advantage. You could also aim for a new closest prior art document with an alternative difference so that you only have one non-obvious effect. If an opponent argues that you're in a one-way street situation, then you can explain that there were alternatives that the skilled person could have chosen from and the skilled person was not inevitably guided towards the invention. And then on this point, discussed in this case just now, you could explain why the additional unexpected effect is not merely accidental by considering the relative and technical practical importance of it. Yeah, I see. So that, that's bringing that final case. Our second effect is a really important one that's really useful. Plenty of scope for discretion there in terms of the EPO assessing those kinds of arguments and deciding whether or not it is an important technical effect or not. So if the shoe's on the other foot, if you're an opponent, what can you do to sort of improve your chances of saying this pattern's invalid, it's just a bonus effect? So as an opponent, you can ensure that you have a strong close prior art document where the difference with the claim invention leads to an obvious first effect. So for example, you can look for a prior art document where the difference with the claim mentions is a modification with which the skilled person might routinely employ. You can also look for good reasons to argue that the skilled person is a one-way street and that the skilled person is inevitably guided towards the invention. If the skilled person could choose from obvious multiple options, then you could lean on T13, 17, 13 to argue that a one-way street isn't required. And then you can also highlight that the additional unexpected effect is merely accidental. So you can have a look at where the patent describes the technical and practical importance of those effects, for example, in the data or the discussion section of the application. I've got a feeling this debate has got another few decades to run. Wasn't the first decision you cited from the 80s? Yep, 81. Lovely. And we're still having this argument now. Brilliant. That's what patents are all about. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today. If you do have any questions about the topics we discussed, then do get in touch. Our details are on our website, of course. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll join us again soon.